from KQED. From KQED Public Radio, I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up in this hour of Forum, the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think the genius of our Constitution is that over now more than two centuries, this notion of who counts has become ever more inclusive. We'll talk about Justice Ginsburg's pioneering fight for gender equity as a young lawyer, as well as her most notable opinions as a U.S. Supreme Court justice. Plus, what her death means for issues like the Affordable Care Act, abortion, and the future of the court. And we want to hear from you. What questions do you have about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and what did she mean to you? That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Crowds across the country mourned over the weekend for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died on Friday at the age of 87, following a years-long battle with pancreatic cancer. Prior to her appointment by President Clinton to the High Court, Justice Ginsburg devoted her legal career to the fight against sex discrimination, winning key victories that enshrined the 14th Amendment's promise of gender equality under the law. On the bench, she became a celebrity among progressives for her stinging dissents in cases involving civil rights, contraception, and perhaps most notably in Bush versus Gore, which halted a ballot recount in Florida and handed the presidency to George W. Bush. In this hour, we're going to talk about Justice Ginsburg's life and legacy. And let me first of all extend condolences to her loved ones and to her family and to all of those of you who are mourning her because she was... Uh, clearly such a giant, a woman under five feet who was, and in terms of American jurisprudence, a giant in every single way and an inspiration and heroic to so many of you. So I know there are many who are feeling her loss and it cannot be overstated in terms of her historic stature. Joining us first is Wendy Williams. She's Professor Emeritus at Georgetown Law. She co-authored My Own Words with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Mary Hartnett, and she's currently working on an authorized biography of Justice Ginsburg. She first met Justice Ginsburg in 1971, and welcome, Professor Williams. Good to have you with us. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you, and let's begin by talking, since you are writing a biography about her life. I know you met her in 1971, but I think it's important, especially for younger listeners, to realize what she was up against. Uh, she's a cultural icon now, but the culture of the 50s, she really had three strikes against her. She was a woman, she was a Jew, and she was married. Exactly. And then she had a, in a child, and that made it even harder. And so when you met her, she was, uh, well, this was actually... Uh, uh, when she uh, was a tenured professor, she had just received ten her tenure as a professor, moving toward women's issues, moving toward really becoming the architect of women's issues and against discrimination against women. Yes, when she, she got a teaching job at Rutgers in 1962, um, she was one of uh, only two women hired in the United States on, on law faculties. Uh, and that had been a pattern for quite a long time. So, so you're right, the barriers are great. She had wanted to practice law, but none of the big law firms in uh, New York City would hire her. So she, um, so she clerked for a, a, a judge for a while uh, in the Southern District of New York, 
Um, one of her teachers from Harvard tried to get her a clerkship on the Supreme Court, but the justices weren't ready for a woman yet. Uh, so you're right. I mean, her history really captures the problems of that time. She, when she first went to work at uh, Rutgers in 1962, she was um, this little bitty early 30s, Maybe she was even 28 or 29, actually, now that I think about it. She had been gotten very interested in um, international law, and not just international law in general, but international law of the way courts proceed in civil cases, civil procedure, we call it. Uh, and, um, and her focus was on those comparisons um, for a project for, for at Columbia Law School for two years. And it was during that project where she spent time in Sweden, she uh, learned Swedish, uh, she did a book on civil procedure in Sweden. Um, it, was, uh, it was during that time toward the end that she, she was told by one of her mentors that there was an opening at Rutgers Law School. And uh, knowing that women had a very hard time getting into law teaching, she decided she better take it uh, and not wait around. And uh, that's what she did. So, so she spent all those first years teaching first year civil procedure to students who were no doubt yawning continuously. I, I say that because um, as a former civil procedure teacher myself and a student of civil procedure at law school, it is the most hard to um, get excited about course uh, taught in the law school, probably. Uh, I would put tax in that category too, but some people love tax, so. But anyway, so Ruth was teaching procedure, standing up in front of students, writing articles on procedure and international procedure, and, um, and minding her own business. And along came, around 1969, a rising, a new rising movement, and, it, and I'll call it the women's legal movement because already women's lib was out there and getting a lot of publicity, but the women lawyers uh, project was more focused on legislation and legal cases and developing the law in that area. So she, she publishes her last civil procedure articles in, uh, in 1969. In the fall of 1969, she gets tenure by one vote, uh, as did the one other woman on the faculty um, the year before. And she, um, she is inspired by her students to um, take some steps to put her talents to work on the question of what was then called sex discrimination. So and we should add that, so, uh, I, I'm sorry, but let me move forward with that because uh, you met with her again, I believe at Yale Law School, just right after, soon after that and thus began. Yes kind of a revolution began with respect to women's rights. Right it after. was a revolution. There, there's no other word for it. There had been very few articles, very few teachers of law who were interested in the subject. 
textbooks usually made fun of women in their and in their cases, um, and so it, it, this this sort of powerful rising of students initially. Women students were coming in because in the Vietnam War, law schools couldn't get enough guys to finance themselves. So they let the women in for the first time and it changed. It was a sea change. So in 1969 at, um, at NYU Law School, uh, there was the first course taught on women in law. It was sanctioned by the law school, but taught by an outsider and the students themselves. Uh, and that group of students put their heads together and began spreading the word. Uh, by 1970, there was um, founded a uh, Women in the Law Conference, a National Women in the Law Conference. The first National Women in the Law Conference was in 1970 at NYU, and it wasn't very big. But it grew to include thousands and um, and lasted all the way till 1990 and became the occasion for education. Ruth Ginsburg was at almost every one of those conferences in the early days. She was there. She was serious. She was tiny. She looked proper and none of the rest of us did. We were young and radical people in those days. And uh, and she would speak about the Constitution. She also was supporting the Equal Rights Amendment and discussing that, and that would that would be her contribution. So I saw her every year at, at those conferences for a long time. When did but, the uh, when did the ACLU uh, founded the women's rights uh, group that actually began to litigate? Uh, that yeah. really tied in with the with, with the revolution. What we're calling the revolution. I know there was in 1971 a landmark case called Reed versus Reed, which you might want to address too, but. That whole ACLU project was really central, wasn't it? Well, so this was this was the coming together of many things. At the ACLU, there was an uprising. Uh, they have biennial conferences, or did then? I'm not sure what they do now exactly. And the biennial conferences brought uh, representatives of the ACLU from around the country for a conference in, I think, in, in June, basically. And that conference, for the for the first time, um, had some had a, a rising up of the women there, and they had two big points, both of which got adopted uh, by that body. And one was that the ACLU itself should get itself integrated uh, on the basis of sex as well as race, and that the ACLU should prioritize cases involving uh, gender equality. So, so that was very big. There's a door opening there. You can see feel it. In the 1971 conference at Yale New Haven, it was a collection of um, some of those New Yorkers who were already working on things. And uh, Ruth Ginsburg was there. Uh, and I remember, this is where I met her, of course, flying across the country on a plane. I, 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 I was born in uh, California and grew up in the mountains. And so this was my first big trip to the other coast. And there we were up in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, a conference that included women interested in teaching women in the law courses and in helping promote uh, or, or contribute to 
casebooks on the subject so that our students could be taught about it through casebooks, which is the way we teach law generally. And so a casebook was, was born at that conference. Ruth Ginsburg was there and she, um, within a few months, had teamed up with two other people, one of them, Herma Kay from UC Berkeley. Uh, uh, and they too set to work on a casebook. And meanwhile, those of us who were there went home with a lot of it, um, uh, pieces of paper describing where we could find articles and what the statistics were and how we might teach um, a course on women in the law. And so at that point, women went back all across the country uh, and started Women in the Law. Wendy Williams, we're coming up on a break here, and I want to extend thanks to you for joining us for these remembrances that you have provided us about Justice Ginsburg, who, as I said, certainly is being mourned and the loss is being felt all over this country. Wendy Williams, good to have you with us, and I thank you. Thanks. That's Wendy Williams, Professor Emeritus, Georgetown Law, co-authored My Own Words with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Mary Hartnett, and currently is working on an authorized biography of Justice Ginsburg. When we return, David Levine and Margaret Russell, a couple of local law professors, join us to talk more about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her legacy and her life. Stay tuned. That's up ahead. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Do you have questions about the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg? And really, we're asking the question, what did she mean to you? We're talking about her life and legacy. And joining us now is David Levine, professor at UC Hastings College of the Law. Welcome, Professor Levine. Good morning, Michael. For the record, I want you to know I'm drinking coffee with my notorious RBG coffee mug. All right. Glad to have that. Uh, I uh, have one, too. Uh, Margaret Russell, you have one as well. Margaret Russell, again, professor of law at Santa Clara University, joins us as well, both with their RBG coffee cups. Boy, there are, there, she becomes such a cultural icon. Uh, there are RBG socks, there are RBG t-shirts. Uh, she was really uh, beloved and a woman of great rectitude and a woman really of meticulous and disciplined uh, shaping of the law and writing of the law. She was influenced at Cornell by Vladimir, Vladimir Nabokov, no less, uh, told that she could write and, and write in pictures. Uh, and Margaret, let me begin with you. Let's talk about really, let's hear a cut first, because this kind of sums up a lot about Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was asked a question about how many women should be justices on the court. You have that cut, Danny? People ask me sometimes, when, when do you think it will be enough? When will, it, will there be enough women on the court? And my answer is, when there are nine. Yeah, well, let me go back to you on this, Professor Russell, because uh, the reality is that, and, and you teach courses in gender and the law, and I know uh, that studying Justice Ginsburg and studying uh, all of her decisions, particularly in some ways maybe her dissents as well, uh, has given so many young women inspiration. What, what's, the, what's at the heart of that? Oh, absolutely. And before I begin, I have to say that both David and I have something else in common with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and that we love civil procedure. So <laughs> that's actually how- And I do too. <laughs> oh, terrific, Professor Williams, that's great. Um, so I, I'm glad you asked that in terms of, of what she means to women, because I see her influence generationally by comparing 
uh, women lawyers of my generation with hers, and then now teaching the youngest generation of lawyers in gender and law and constitutional law. I graduated from law school 25 years after Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, and this is how I tell my students um, the significance between her time and mine. When she graduated, uh, she had trouble getting a job, even though she was at the top of her class. She was a top performing student. She and other women were regularly asked questions like, and openly, um, why are you taking a spot that really should be for a man? Um, you're gonna get married, you're gonna have children, you're taking up space. She, um, she was trying to start a family and work very hard, something that my women students really worry a lot about. Uh, how do you juggle that? And she did it so prodigiously, I think, that it's a little awe-inspiring. But I, what, I, what I mentioned to my students is that in this, you know, sort of passing along of the generations, um, she shines as someone who who cares about justice. That's a sign in her chambers, justice, justice shall you pursue. And she was very aware of the hardships in her life and also the privileges in her life. She was very unpretentious in describing them. And I think she was very resolute in moving forward through life right to the end with grace and determination. So I think she is not just a seat on the court, obviously, she represents so much more. And let's talk about what she represents, particularly in terms of cases with you, David Levine. I mean, we have to go back to 1996, first of all, and thinking about most significant cases, because that was a real turning point with the Virginia Military Institute. Sure, absolutely, Michael, uh, because um, it was, in a way, the culmination of that strategy that Professor Williams was starting to tell us about, where uh, Justice Ginsburg, as a litigator, so brilliantly uh, found the cases to bring the issues to the fore so that the Supreme Court justices, lower court judges, essentially all men, uh, could understand it. And so one of the brilliant things that she did is that she found cases, those early ones, where men were at a disadvantage. Uh, and uh, she was able to show the discrimination, the, the stupidity of the discrimination that way. And then with VMI, where she was able to write a seven to one majority opinion, she really enshrined that because at VMI, an all-male institution uh, that uh, with uh, very rigorous physical standards and all to go into it, Virginia, when they were challenged, actually set up a weaker program for women, talk about separate but equal, and Justice Ginsburg was having none of it. Uh, even if very few women would be able to meet the particular standards of VMI or might be interested in that kind of a life, it needed to be open. And so that what I, I would say what she did is she helped us to knock down stereotypes in all sorts of areas, whether it was disability, whether it was women's rights. And also, I think she was very proud of essentially creating men's liberation as well in the sense of equality. Uh, one of her clients was somebody who was trying to take care of his kids and wasn't getting a benefit. Uh, and she was able to use that as a case to show the unfairness. So I think it's not just that she's a role model for women, but for men who want to have uh, a life that uh, encompasses all sorts of parts and uh, that there's no discrimination or stereotypes against anybody. David Levine is Professor UC Hastings College of the Law. Wendy Williams, again, is Professor Emeritus at Georgetown Law. I'm going to go back to you, Professor Williams, since we're evaluating Justice Ginsburg's career and looking at it from a broad perspective, one has to say she was not only, this, this is a word that's been uh, unfortunately uh, put in a 
Well, George Orwell wrote about this word being uh, overused so much that it lost its meaning. But she was a leader of a, what we could describe as liberalism, whether it was gender discrimination or whether it was uh, abortion and, and reproductive rights, affirmative action, workers' rights. I mean, across the board, what used to be the best of, in many people's minds, what liberalism was. And she was a liberal leader on the court. She was uh, remarkable in her ability to, in, in the early days on the court, um, try to follow in the lead of uh, and build on what the what the uh, Warren Court had done before her, and was now a lost opportunity. So when she was going to the the Supreme Court with that first case, Reed versus Reed. She was facing a court that had a new chief justice, uh, Warren Berger, and she was um, facing a, a court that in its whole history had never written a case recognizing the full personhood and equality of women. So, um, so it was kind of a steep ladder she was climbing, uh, but she, she, she wrote a, a brief in that case, which, um, which, which was remarkable. She, she, she gave the history of the differences in treatment under law of men and women. And she wove that into arguments for how the court should look at the case. And, and she won, she won for all of us. Now it wasn't the case that she wanted, uh, in the sense that they did not proclaim any big new principle of women's equality. But there was a hint there of something new. And what was absolutely new was that they held in favor of women's equality. So that was case number one. And from there, she wanted to go on and develop the cases. And um, as David has told you, there were several really important cases of hers after that that took the law even further. Well, and David, if I go back to you on this, I mean, she even recently was right at the center of an LGBT case. I mean, as I say, when you think about what at least was the hallmark of liberalism or what epitomized the ideals of liberalism, whether it's gun control or religious cases, reproductive rights, she was the leader and uh, really at the center of those cases. And even the cases that she wrote dissents in uh, were quite famous, and she felt that they would last, and she hoped that they would be part of her posterity. Oh, absolutely. Uh, one that comes to mind is the uh, Lily Ledbetter case, Ledbetter uh, uh, versus Goodyear, where uh, she, Lily Ledbetter had been uh, denied equal pay, and, and her employer had hid that from her. And the question of the case was, uh, not only could she sue, but how far back could she sue, because she had lost a lot of money because of uh, what had been hidden from her. And the majority uh, said, well, it was a short period of time. She couldn't go back very far. And Justice Ginsburg wrote a terrific dissent there. And she ended up saying that Congress should fix this. And I think the way she ended it was on the order of the ball is in your court. And in fact, the first piece of legislation that President Obama signed was in fact the Lilly Ledbetter uh, Act, which fixed that problem. And so that uh, you can just see cause and effect from her dissent absolutely changed minds in Congress. Yeah, let's hear Justice Ginsburg on the value of writing dissents. You're writing for a future age, uh, and your hope is that 
with time, the court will see it the way you do. And Margaret Sol- uh, Russell, Margaret Russell again is professor of law at Santa Clara University. I'd like your thoughts about uh, something that I know you've given some thought to, and that is the relationship that she had. She may have been a liberal's liberal for much of her career, but she had this uh, loving friendship with Scalia, who was as much an ideologue on uh, the conservative side as she may have been on the liberal side, which I think should be in some ways inspiring that people can go across the lines and still have, they both loved opera, they both uh, were very dear to each other. And uh, I love one of her statements where she said, I love uh, <laughs> I love him, but sometimes I feel I'd like to strangle him. And yet they traveled together, they went to India together, they were on a, <laughs> a famous photo of them on an elephant together. It was really in some ways um, inspiring, wasn't it? think so. And I know some would uh, scratch their heads and say, something's wrong with her <laughs> to be friends with him. But, but I did observe it and read interviews with them over the years. She was very open about saying he made her laugh. And they did have this shared love of opera and uh, with their spouses used to get together, I think every holiday season in the tradition. So and I think that, uh, that often, love and chemistry and common interest really does transcend political difference. And that is a very good example. Well, a very good example also uh, that we ought to highlight is her husband, Marty Ginsburg, who was a famous and distinguished tax lawyer in his own right, but he was her biggest supporter. He was also pretty good in the kitchen from what I've read. And uh, uh, let me go back to you on that, Wendy <laughs> Williams. Uh, she didn't even know how to operate an oven. There's in, in Nina Totenberg's uh, remembrances of her, she said something about Ruth should warm something up, but she didn't know how to operate an oven or use an oven because Marty did everything in the kitchen and he was really, in in the best sense of the word, a feminist. He was in the best sense of the word a feminist. And, and, And she was a terrible cook. I mean, she did the cooking early on and it was, by all accounts, by that I mean her daughter, her son, her spouse, terrible. And so he took over in the kitchen and things really were upgraded. That happened uh, clear back in the uh, uh, Rutgers years and uh, was carried forth ever after and probably gave her a little extra time too to do all the work she was doing, which was extraordinary. I mean, she was working, she she was teaching law full time. She was doing ACLU Supreme Court cases on gender she was uh, writing articles. She was giving talks. She was um, she was uh, working with the American Association of Law Schools to convince it to uh, support women's equality, which it did in an important way very early on. And so it, he was a blessing. He was he really loved her, and uh, and he, I. You know, he, he told jokes. She needed to laugh. I, I, I like what um, what was just said about laughing because uh, when she was working so hard, her children had this little book in which they recorded whenever she laughed because she was so serious and tired all the time. So, uh, uh, but... Can I just insert woman- a couple of examples of her humor? That I mentioned Nina Totenberg's remembrances of her and... Uh, I think these are illustrative in some ways. Uh, you, we were talking about her husband, Marty. Uh, 
he was getting radiation and the doctor said it was very unlikely that they would be able to have another child because of the radiation, but she got pregnant. And when she went to see the doctor, according to Nina Totenberg's account, uh, she said to the doctor, uh, you have to tell me who the father is uh, in this, right, if I can ask. <laughs> Um, she had that kind of humor. It's also uh, in Nina Totenberg's remembrances. Um, there's a when Nina Totenberg's uh, second husband, her first husband, died, who was a surgeon. Um, yes. uh, she started dating him, and uh, uh, she asked. Uh, she told Justice Ginsburg, who she was friends with for decades, about the fact that she was dating someone, and she said Justice Ginsburg's response was, "Details. I want details." You know, which is really, <laughs> again one of those illustrative she stories. She got funnier as things went along. Uh, she was shy and serious and focused. I, there's one one story that I haven't heard told anywhere, but I I, I read about it in the student newspaper, um, which was that what, at Rutgers, it, in, it must have been 1969 or 70, um, the students had an annual show uh, in which they uh, mocked their professors. And the one that mocked her showed a student playing her behind the desk, standing there lecturing, and a, somebody behind her, I don't know whether it was male or female, undressing her and she didn't notice. So it, it, it the thing she was up against I mean, everybody was laughing. She was in the audience, and there she was being undressed as a way of showing how serious she is. She she lightened up, and and I think Scalia, the point that Scalia made her laugh is really important, <laughs> really important. That's that was a big thing. But the other thing, of course, was opera, which is the only place I think she actually got tears in her eyes over anything. Let me just add, since we're talking about her humor, uh, one of the things that certainly impressed me about her was her toughness. Uh, I mean, this is a woman who went through a number of cases of cancer personally, fought through them, worked through them, and stayed at the job, so to speak. Uh, she had five bouts of cancer. She had broken ribs. She had blocked arteries that required a stent. In other words, tremendous pain, and yet she was able to work out all the time. I'll go back, David Levine, to a... a Quick story from you on this. Uh, it's a it's a funny story too. In many ways, you were with her in Tuscany. Correct. Want to talk about that? That's oh sure. Yeah, I had the privilege of co-teaching with her uh, for a summer course in in Siena, and um, which was you know terrific. And we we did a moot court where my wife and I were her associate justices, and she was the chief, and the students got to argue. But the story is that uh, the uh, head of the program asked my wife and myself to take the Ginsburgs out to dinner. And what was arranged is that we would go to some really pretty restaurant, uh, which was out near an old castle uh, under the stars, under the vineyards. And it was my job to drive everybody. And if anybody's been in Tuscany or driven in Italy, you know that the roads are narrow. The drivers are bold. Excuse me, and David, they so, call it a blood sport driving in Tuscany. You bet, you bet. And so there I am and it's like, okay, it's my honor to do this. And I'm trying to find my way. And I notice that she's not wearing her seatbelt. And Marty told her, Ruth, put on your seatbelt. And she just, I don't like seatbelts. Uh, so she just wouldn't do it. So I felt like the fate of the nation was in my hands at that point, uh, as we had to navigate over to the restaurant. And then worse, coming back in the dark after, let's say we tried a little wine uh, during dinner, 
but I did get her back safely. But um, but I'm good. It was a pleasure to be with her for that week. You saved her Thank for us. And, and, and now you have the coffee cup in front of you uh, as a remembrance. I want to read some comments that are coming in as we come up on a break. Sherry writes, while everyone calls her a feminist, she was more of a humanist. She strived to equalize people under the law, even if she didn't want to wear a seatbelt. Here's Marjorie who writes, I met RG, uh, RBG in 1978 when I had the chance to invite her to speak at the University of Puget Sound when she was at Columbia. I was in awe of her even then. She had already made such a huge contribution to expanding equality. She was so gracious, regal, and brilliant. She's been one of my heroines for at least 40 years. And Pete tweets, did RBG subscribe to an ideology? I don't think so. Please don't label her as someone who was devoted to equality, necessarily a liberal well, we can come back and talk about that a little bit. We'll talk more. Please feel free to join us toll-free, 866-733-6786, or on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg with three distinguished professors of law, Wendy Williams, David Levine, and Margaret Russell. And we certainly welcome you. And you can become involved in this program. If you have some memories or some questions about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, please feel free to let us know what she means to you. Uh, in fact, you can do that by giving us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. We haven't even gotten into the politics yet, but I want to get in, Margaret Russell, with you to this notion of liberal. She was known as the leader of the liberal flank of the court, that label certainly is a label that is associated with all kinds of things. It has multivalent meanings but uh, and ideological meanings, but it's not necessarily inappropriate, is it? I would call her liberal, certainly. And uh, depending upon how you define liberal and, and what you presume underlies it, or conservative, um, it, it could be a good or bad thing. But this is what I think it means in her context. Um, Justice Ginsburg was very clear precise in her writing, her analysis. She spoke her mind. She asked questions in oral argument very quietly, but you know, very firmly. And when she was asked questions about being a judge, she said, I am relying on the record of that case, the facts and the law. Uh, and I, I don't think a judge should play to the home crowd was the phrase that she used. So the liberal conservative uh, approach, as well as the original text versus, you know, not just the original text approach. It also encompasses different people's sense of what justice and equality mean. And I think what Ruth Bader Ginsburg brought to the court, uh, and certainly Thurgood Marshall brought to the court, was a, con a construction of justice that was very capacious and that recognized particularly harms against women, but she made decisions in a whole range of areas. And it was very justice focused. It wasn't favoring one team versus the other. Well, you mentioned Justice Marshall. She's been compared in terms of uh, being an architect of women's rights uh, to Justice Marshall and the work he did on behalf of civil rights and behalf of uh, particularly African-Americans. And Margaret, as an African-American woman, uh, I'd like your response to a, a tweet here from a listener who says, I learned something surprising about RBG while trying to figure out the possible black women that Joe Biden would choose as a running mate. In 23 years, Justice Ginsburg had only a single African-American clerk out of a possible 108. She did have equal numbers of men and women. Uh, we fact-checked that. And what's your response, Margaret? 
Well, that's really a shame. Um, I mean, I have no uh, insight into her clerk hiring, but I know other justices have done much better. Um, and I don't know what her answer would be to that. But certainly, um, I think that, well, let me put it this way, as in, since you asked as an African-American woman, what sticks with me, I think, about the way she lived her life and her jurisprudence and her career um, gives me great hope that I and the next generation uh, of lawyers and law professors will rely upon her approach in pushing the door open to push it open in many ways. Some people would say kick the door down. You did uh, have some concern, though, about what ultimately she tendered an apology for, uh, and I'm talking about uh, not not President Trump, who she called egotistical and so and, and said was a fake, and she apologized. Fake. She apologized for that because it was inappropriate in so many people's minds for her to say those things as a justice. But you were critical of the fact that she was critical of uh, Colin Kaepernick's kneeling and called it ridiculous and dumb, right? She did apologize for that as well, though. Yes. So, so I, I actually think it's it's correct that sitting justices should not uh, kind of let let lots of things slip from their lips. And even the earlier Trump comment, I thought, well, you know, what she said may be true, but it shouldn't be coming from a sitting justice on the Supreme Court. I was very disappointed, actually angry, when I first read um, the quote about Colin Kaepernick. And my initial impression, because she was saying, oh, that's really dumb. Why would athletes do that, take a knee? Is I thought, she doesn't really understand what this is about. And I think within a couple of days, someone had schooled her and uh, she did apologize. And here's a caller, Carrie, joining us from San Jose. Carrie, welcome. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I just wanted to know if your guest could talk a little bit about her dissent in Citizens United, which she has said is uh, the worst court decision in modern times. David Levine. Sure. Well, I, I do think it's one of the most significant cases in terms of uh, how it has changed our politics. Uh, and, she, you know, she was absolutely right in terms of predicting some of the harm. I mean, look at the money that is flowing in at this point, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so that, so that on that, I think she was absolutely dead right. The other one I would put in the same category would be Shelby County versus Holder, where the majority eviscerated the Voting Rights Act. And Justice Ginsburg famously said, this is like throwing away your umbrella during a rainstorm just because you're, uh, you're not getting wet, uh, in the sense of it was preventing a lot of harm, a lot of things that we're seeing now. So those two opinions, uh, are tremendously affecting our election right now. And I think she was absolutely right in both cases to warn us as to how misguided both of those opinions were by the majority. Well, we got one of her sort of deathbed wishes, and uh, maybe you can comment on this, Wendy Williams. Uh, uh, her granddaughter said that she said uh, that she hopes that another president will be able to name her replacement. Uh, it sounded like in fact, she used the word fervent. It's a fervent wish of hers. Uh, it, it sounded certainly like a deathbed wish. And now we've got the situation where uh, there seems to be an avoidance uh, by Mitch McConnell of principles which he laid down in 2016 and not even having a hearing from Eric Garland. Oh, this is just so painful. She she was trying very hard to stay alive, as as most people recognize. She She did her best. And I asked her last day, uh, who she was, uh, 
was what she asked her granddaughter to reveal to people. And um, her granddaughter, who is also a lawyer, and her daughter, who's also a lawyer, uh, were there with her when she died. So they, they kind of, she was very grateful to them and her family for showing up and helping her through this. And let me bring another caller aboard here. James joins us. James, hi, you're on the air. Yes, yes, Michael. Uh, thank you for taking the call. And again, this is a, another great program. Um, listening to the program, uh, the term liberal seems to be being thrown back and forth to define Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I think that's in, in many ways a misnomer for her. I think above and beyond anything else, she was an intellectual. She wasn't trying to be a crusader for liberalism, liberal causes. I don't think that really describes her. I think in, in the Congress, people embrace those terms. I want to be a conservative. I'm a liberal. I'm, you know, because that's who they are, and that's what they think you know, will advance them. I think what she did, now, the, I guess, understand and are much more familiar with the, her decisions and her opinions and her sense than I did. I, I didn't really study her. But I really got the impression that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, above and beyond, was an intellectual who made her ideas palatable to people like me who can understand what she was about. And that's her, her the, the essence of who she is, an intellectual above and beyond being a liberal. That's yeah, James, I appreciate that. And I would agree with you that she was an intellectual. We had talked about this a moment ago, but you can say right. that she sided with what was known as the liberal wing in almost all major cases. And that was a block and it was described as the liberal wing. So if you want to get rid of that notion, you may have to change the history books uh, in terms of the use of liberal that was there. But I thank you for that contribution, and I thank you for the call. And I'm wondering, sure. uh, as we come up on a break here, um, th there are 264 days uh, before the election, uh, Margaret Sullivan, uh, when uh, it was decided by Mitch McConnell and that administration, uh, under or that Senate under his rule, not to move forward with the nomination of Merrick Garland. There are only 46 days now until um, a decision is made by the United States citizens who will be the next president. Um, and yet there is this attempt to kind of ramrod through. In fact, uh, you know, McConnell, so keep your powder dry. We're going to get this on the Senate floor right away. Is, is that, Michael, I'm sorry, is that question for me? Yeah, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this, yes. Margaret. Well, it's, it's so absurd. It speaks for itself. It's clearly dishonest and inconsistent with um, what they did so vociferously when Merrick Garland was nominated far earlier in the election year. And I can think of no plausible defense of that other than just dirty politics. Well, David Levine, it may be dirty politics, but uh, McConnell's saying, well, you know, it's a different configuration now. Uh, the Senate is in a majority of the uh, present party, and that's different than it was with Merrick Garland. And the Democrats, uh, really, what tools do they have here? Uh, they're talking about maybe halting things. Uh, Pelosi's talking about impeachment. They're talking about packing the court and putting more justices, even talking about uh, getting rid of the filibuster. Right. Well, in the short term, the Democrats' hope is that four Republicans or perhaps two more Republican senators will find a backbone and will say to Senator McConnell that this is not right that we did uh, follow a rule that they even were calling the Biden rule uh, when they stopped Merrick Garland and that we should stick with that rule. Apparently, Senator Mikowski and perhaps Susan Collins, I always worry about whether she's gonna carry through, but at least the two of them have said that they don't think it should move so fast. So if there are four 
Republicans who break away, then Senator McConnell can't jam something through. So the politics are very dicey. And, you know, the question of do you try to jam something through in less than seven weeks before the election? Do you have a nominee before then and then have the hearings or perhaps the vote afterwards or what is fraught for a lot of people? So it's really that question of can you find four Republicans to stand up to Senator McConnell and President Trump to say, no, we're going to follow our previous principled stand as we had it with uh, uh, Judge Garland and stick with that and then see what happens after the election. Whether well, it happen, is a it is uh, it is fraught, and it is uh, certainly, I think, contingent maybe on some Senate races too in purple states or states that are uh, that are blue. But we will um, obviously monitor this as carefully as we can, and uh, we've got some likely candidates if President Trump does try to push through uh, with Mitch McConnell, uh, someone to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He's already named uh, Federalist candidates and likely candidates and said that he would probably pick a woman. This is, by the way, a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. And for more information about how to support this radio station, simply go to kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny, and you're listening to Forum again on this public radio station, KQED-FM in San Francisco. Let me go to... um, Go to a tweet here from Nora who writes, I taught my husband to be a feminist. He cooked and changed a lot of diapers while I worked and nursed migraines. A lawyer friend of mine said, we all need a Marty. Uh, And another comment from Jean, whether it was overcoming religious, sexual, and political prejudices of the times or her later illnesses later in life, she kept on fighting the good fight. She was one tough lady. Her passing is another bright light extinguished, bringing further darkness to our land with hopes for a more perfect union. Been a tough 2020. Uh, Wendy Williams, uh, you're writing a biography of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You said it's tough to be her biographer. Why is it tough to be her biographer, this tough lady? Well, one reason it's tough is because she she never slept. So so for every one day I live, and I'm 11 years younger than she was, um, she has two days going for her in terms of work. So I, I always felt it wasn't quite fair. I wish they had been the other way around. <laughs> she, she, um, she, she was so uh, remarkable. I, one of the things that hasn't we, nobody's mentioned yet, but um, she did. She, whenever anybody did something nice to her or had a birthday or whatever, she remembered them all, and she wrote little thank you notes. I have thank you notes from her going clear back to. Um, to the 70s and uh and everybody who's dealt with her has had that experience over time of her it, she, it wasn't that she was just a total intellectual and up in the air somewhere she also in a um, in a very human way cared about each individual and i think that's part of the driving force behind her understanding of the constitution i mean Remember that the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, guarantees to every person equal protection under the laws. And she took person very seriously. And she looked at the facts of cases. She looked at the history behind the cases. She, um, she believed that she had to take human life, human dignity very seriously. 
Well, there's a story that comes to mind. Again, Nina Totenberg's remembrances. Uh, she talks about a club called the Cosmo Club in Washington, D.C., which opened up to women in the late uh, 80s. And she was invited to apply, and she said she had some qualms about it, but she applied, and she was blackballed. That's the term they used at the time for somebody who was not uh, given one person who would vote against someone and that would exclude them. And she said that a few years later, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was invited. She was given a tour, and they asked her if she wanted to be a member. And she said, a club that is too good for Nita Totenberg is too good for me, too. I think that's an instructive story about the kind of person she was. And we're learning a lot about this great pioneer in the course of this hour. Uh, let's go back to politics, though, David Levine, in the little time we have left. Uh, how do you see this shaping up, uh, particularly in terms of who the replacement's going to be and how the fight's going to proceed? Well, apparently President Trump told his friends at Fox this morning that he planned to make his nomination on Friday or Saturday, uh, that he was going to at least wait for Justice Ginsburg's uh, services and funeral, and then go ahead. And the two names you hear the uh, most are uh, uh, Amy Comey Barrett from the Seventh Circuit and um, Judge uh, Barbara Lagoya from the Eleventh Circuit. So we could talk about them a little bit. They're both interesting possibilities. Uh, they would be uh, about as polar opposite to Justice Ginsburg as could be imagined. Yeah, I was thinking about that, particularly in terms of, uh, you remember the uh, confirmation hearings for Justice Bar Barrett when uh, Diane Feinstein, Senator Feinstein, said to her, you know, you're an ideologue. Uh, it was on the question of abortion. Uh, and she said she felt quite uncomfortable with that. Back, though, to her, to Justice Ginsburg's working habits, a listener writes, RBG worked all night. A clerk once left a message on her phone in the middle of the night, not expecting her to answer but she did. Uh, I'd like to go back to you with a little time left here, Margaret Russell, and get your thoughts about her, particularly, again, in terms of the inspiration of your students, and especially on the questions of gender. Yes, I, I had mentioned before that the generational change um, has been pretty dramatic, even though, of course, it's far overdue. There were 3% women lawyers when she first became a lawyer, 3%. And now there are about 50% of law school enrollment is women. So in the time, the 25 years between her and my graduation from law school, um, many of the questions that she was asked and many of the barriers that she faced became illegal. Sexual harassment became illegal. Um, discriminating in employment became illegal. Of course, it still happened. But the fact that there was that enormous um, change in the generation in which she and, and Professor Williams were part, the sort of the pioneering generation of um, a feminist interpretation of the law, I think has made a tremendous difference for all going and I'll forward. just add one other story that I came across when she was 18 years old. Um, uh, a employer sexually harassed her and she stood up and said, how dare you? That, and said it twice. Uh, I mean, in those days, uh, a lot of women put up with it, unfortunately, but uh, she clearly didn't. And that says a great deal about who she would become and the kind of law that she would practice and interpret. Thank you all for joining us for this important hour on the legacy and life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Wendy Williams, David Levine, Margaret Russell, indebted to you all for a good hour and an important hour. And for all of you who are listening to us, stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.